It's time for Security Now with Steve Gibson. As always, lots of security news. Steve will have that for you. And a discussion of something that's truly important to cryptography and other key security uh, issues. Random numbers. How do you get something like a computer that's designed not to be random to come up with a good random number? Steve will talk about it this week on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp for Android, the ultimate media player for your desktop and Android device, featuring wireless sync. Download it free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. It's time for Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 299, recorded May 4th, 2011, going random. Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite. Backing up the files on your PC or Mac is safe and easy with Carbonite. For a free trial plus two free months with purchase, go to Carbonite.com, offer code SECURITYNOW, and by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. Plus, get DVDs by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com slash twit. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security and privacy online with this cat here, this man, Steve Gibson of GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation. He is our hero, our knight in shining security. I'm a cat this week. A this cat. cat. Yeah, yeah. I see I'm hep now. I'm, I've turned hep. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. There's a little Sammy Davis Jr. channel in there. Hey, Steve, how are you today? Hey, Leo. Great to be with you again, as always. Thank you. Uh, today, we're going to cover a subject that's kind of fundamental to not only security, but computers in general. It's something we have, we've, we've touched on many times in the last five and a half years, but never really focused on it. And... I have been focused on it personally because I've had some problems to solve in this regard. And I thought, you know, this would be something really great to talk about. And that is the whole issue of randomness. What, what is randomness? Why does crypto depend upon it? And where do we get it? Now, it's a big enough topic, and we've got so much news this week, as, as we have been in the last few weeks, that I thought, you know... I'm not going to be able to do this all in a single podcast. So this will be part one of what we're calling going random. Going um, random. I love it. <laughs> where we'll set up the problem and, and, and get into it, but stop short of going into the solutions which have been devised, which are really interesting. I mean, you know, I mean, I think I've, I'm sure I've spoken on the podcast, for example, that somewhere at Sun computer there was at one time cameras looking at lava lamps and yes they, because lava the the the, fl the the flow of the wax in a lava lamp is a chaotic unpredictable process and so they were literally digitizing lava lamp images as a source of of chaos to feed into their need for random numbers so uh, anyway, we've got uh, a great podcast this week. Lots of interesting updates and news. And uh, and the first half of 
of the issue of random numbers uh, in cryptography and the need for them and uh, the problems uh, of like that we have of generating them. It's a it's actually a fascinating subject in computer science and as you say, germane. Well, and it's a problem because computers aren't. They're not. I mean, random. I mean, that's the problem. They're not. Is, you right. know, every time you add two and two, you really want to get four. Yeah. But sometimes you really wish, you know, you need you need something random. And the computers can't produce randomness. They absolutely can't. Hey, I want to, uh, before we get to that and a celebration of an anniversary, too, I want to mention huh. some friends at Carbonite. You know the backup folks. We talk about Carbonite a lot. I think, you know, one of the kind of pieces in your security arsenal is a good backup. Because no matter how secure you are, at some point, things happen. Uh, I mean, certainly hard drives die and files are accidentally deleted. But if you get an infection, you're going to need to wipe everything out and start over. Uh, having a good backup is just kind of critical to your overall security and disaster planning. And Carbonite kind of fits the bill for the kinds of backup you need. I'll give you a couple of points. We talked about 3-2-1 backup. This is Peter Krogh's uh, invention. He's uh, an expert on digital asset management, a photographer, so they care a lot. You know, you take wedding photos, you can't afford to lose them. But, hey, don't we all have photos that we don't want to lose of our kids, our, 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 our life, not to mention financial records, emails, uh, music, video, all of, all of the stuff that we keep on our hard drives. That stuff's vital. So this applies no matter what. Three, two, one. Three copies of everything. That includes the original. If you erase the original, now you have two copies. So three means three copies uh, in, in two different media. So don't de depend on everything on CDs or everything on USB keys or external hard drives. You get two different media just in case. And then the final and the most important one, off-site. It's, it's great to have a local backup on a hard drive, but the second format should be off-site so that if the worst happens, you know, there's a fire, people steal everything, uh, your backups don't go with the originals. That's why I think Carbonite is such a good solution. I'm going to add a fourth to that 321, and that is it's automatic. You don't have to think about it. As soon as you put Carbonite on your system, PC or Mac, it starts backing up whenever you're online. Very gentle. It's what, we, what the technical term is. It's nice. It doesn't use up your CPU. It doesn't use up your bandwidth. It just trickles it up. But once you're fully backed up, it's able to keep you backed up all the time. You've always got a good backup. And you can even verify it because Carbonite's also off-site storage. So wherever you go... You've got cloud storage of all your vital data. You can see it on any smartphone. You can see it on any computer. Just log into your Carbonite account. There's your stuff. I love that, too. So I'm going to say, really, it's five things. The 321 backup, automatic, verifiable, really important. If you can't verify that you've got a good backup, you don't have a good backup. Try it free right now for 15 days. Just go to Carbonite.com. Use my name. Actually, uh, I think Security Now is the offer code. Yeah, we want to give Steve credit. So use Security Now. As the offer code, you'll get two weeks free. If you decide to buy after that, the normal 12-month subscription will be automatically extended for no additional cost to 14 months. Two months free when you use Security Now when you buy. And at less than 5 bucks a month for unlimited backup of everything on your internal drive, it's really a good deal. It really is. Look at the other guys. I mean, the costs go up a lot higher. This is, this is affordable. The stuff you need at a good price. Carbonite.com. Please use the offer code Security Now. So first, I guess we should say happy anniversary, Steve. I can't, I can't believe it's been a year. I know. Has, I mean, it just shocked me. I, I looked at my profile on Twitter about three weeks ago, and it said, you know, you've been a member for, for 49 weeks. 
And I thought, wow, wow, okay. And so I'd had it on my own radar to mention to uh, all of our podcast listeners. And then this morning, I got a birthday tweet from Twitter. So they knew also. <laughs> they birthday so one tweet? Of the, I never got one a birthday of the, tweet. <laughs> one of the things they're doing now is to say, you've been a member for a year. Happy birthday. And, uh, so um, it was exactly... It was May 4th, the day that we're recording this is May 4th, 2011. It was May 4th, 2010 that I created the SGGRC account on Twitter. Technically, I guess I joined a little, a few days before that, because I remember my first account was Agile Synapse. And then I realized... Yeah, that was good. That, I, I like that <laughs> a, lot, a lot, actually. Elaine... Uh, 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 moaned i'm trying to think of the, mourned mourned the passing of agile synapse she really liked that name a lot um but i realized that in retweeting you really want a shorter handle it's also easy for people for people to type and so forth but uh if, if you're going to retweet then like i'm deliberately often if i'm posting something that i think may be retweetable um i'll leave room at the end so that there's room for an RT at SGGRC um, without people having to go in and shorten what, what I produced. So it's much nicer if it's if it's short. But I wanted to take this moment just to say, I don't know if people have sensed an improvement in the quality of our the top of the show stuff. I feel like it's gotten better in the last year and maybe even more recently than that because I've been a lot more active and our listeners have been those who are following me and, and who are in Twitter have been really effective in sending me tweets for stuff they run across and so I don't know I feel like there's more interest in our top of the show stuff and it's really a consequence of of me being so well informed while I'm doing other things, there's a constant, you know, Twitter feed that I keep an eye on of people saying, hey, did you see this? Did you see this? Now, yes, sometimes I get 300 of the same things, but that's, you know, better than getting none of them. So uh, I just want to say thank you to our listeners for taking the time to, to keep me up to speed. I really do think it improves the podcast, which was the whole reason that I wanted to do this, and I, so it's just, been effective. You can't go wrong putting more content in. I think our, you know, we know our audience. They're smart. They want mo more meat, and uh, so yep. more meat's always good. Yep, yep. So um, everybody's involved in our updates. We haven't had any updates for a couple of weeks. Actually, that category has just been empty. So everyone's there today. We have Mozilla, who has released since we last spoke to our listeners a new version of Firefox. Um, where they fixed a bunch of things across all three of their of their currently maintained uh, upgrade trains, both Firefox 3, 3.5, and 4. Uh, they fixed 53 flaws in the browsers, 12 of which were rated critical by them. Um, the flaws addressed in the new version of Firefox 4 include a pair of issues in the graphics libraries uh, that could be exploited to bypass certain security protections in Windows. So those are important to do. You want to keep Firefox, of course, up to speed. Uh, Chrome, meanwhile, in its sort of background stealthful updating, has brought itself current 
uh, addressing 27 vulnerabilities um, in, in the Chrome browser. Um, and so let's see, I, so I said, bringing the stable build of Chrome to version 11 for Windows, Mac OS 10, and Linux. Um, and <laughs> interestingly, we know how Google pays um, security researchers for reporting problems they found. Well, these 27 vulnerabilities cost Google $16,000 in bounties to 11 different researchers who reported 17 of those 27 flaws. So, you know, they are paying out money for people who find problems and report them, which I think is great. Um, none of these were critical, but uh, 18 of them were given high severity ratings. So uh, Google, you know, you don't really have to do anything to update Google. There's no, no, you know, restarting necessary. Normally when you just start it up, it silently updates itself. I know every time I look, it's already got the latest and greatest from them. So it's doing it continuously. Uh, we did have an update uh, over on the um, Adobe Acrobat Reader uh, Acrobat and Reader side, uh, CoolType uh, DLL had a pretty serious memory corruption remote code execution vulnerability, uh, which affected uh, their versions of uh, Reader 10.0.1 and earlier for Windows, 10.0.2 and earlier for Mac, uh, and Acrobat 10.0.2 for both Windows and Macintosh. And this is about as bad as it can get because uh, they fixed a number of problems, but this one particular memory corruption vulnerability that existed in the CoolType.dll library, uh, which is used by the reader and Acrobat, was actively being exploited in the wild. And all that was required for exploitation was that a user opened a, just opened and viewed a PDF. The act, the act, the action of viewing a PDF would allow a remote attacker to execute arbitrary malicious code on the target machine, both in Mac and Windows. And interestingly, we do have some Mac news. Uh, Mac has been having some problem in the last. Yeah, week. a little worrisome. We've been, error, yeah. you know, problem free for a while. Have been not on target, and just in time for the podcast. Apple has updated iOS. Uh, it is, depending upon which type of phone you have, it's 4.2.8 or 4.3.3. This is the fix to the, what they call their crowdsourced location database cache. Uh, in the window that you get, it says this update contains changes to the iOS crowdsourced location database cache, including reduces the size of the cache. Remember, they were keeping it apparently forever. And now they'd said they were going to, in what we read before last week, they were saying they were going to bring it down to just seven days because that seemed to be reasonable. And they were saying, oh, yeah, it was a bug that it was keeping it forever. Uh, it will no longer back up the cache to iTunes, which is actually news. And it will delete the cache entirely when location services is turned off. So those fixes that we've been awaiting have now just this you know, this May 4th been released from Apple uh, in the morning before we're recording this. That actually, so, it's been pretty quick. That's that's less than two weeks since it was discovered. So that's yeah, that's a pretty good response, I think. Yeah, I think so too. In security news, uh, this isn't this doesn't directly bear on cybersecurity, but I did.
find it interesting to note that in the uh, successful, um, uh, <laughs> what do I, what word do I use? In successfully apprehending, apprehending and killing Osama bin Laden, uh, which the U.S. Special Forces Navy SEALs did a few days ago, uh, they spent a substantial length of time going through the compound and uh, then acquiring 10 hard drives, oh. five, five PCs, wow. more than 100 storage devices, including CDs, DVDs, wow. and thumb drives. So that's what obtained. those couriers were bringing and uh, taking. Yes, you know, they yes. had no phone service. They had no Internet access. Well, and I think that was really smart from a security standpoint. That 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 represented <laughs> yep. some cleverness, and yep. they were also uh, burning all of their refuse, all of their garbage, instead of having any of it taken out of that compound. Although, so, as we know, that was also a red flag for security services that there was no connectivity in this m mansion, and yep. that they, periodically they were burning stuff. That was well, also a little, you know, suspicious. There was a lot that was screwy because none of the other homes that were there had 18-foot walls. Yeah. And and yeah. the third floor balcony had its own 7-foot privacy shield, right. a, a, another wall, so that people could be out there on the third floor balcony and not be seen. So, I mean, it, it was it was been clear to anybody that who, whoever was inside this thing was... You know, intending to, to maintain their privacy and their identity to be kept a secret, you know, to, and regard as, as a high value. Of course, no one, well, certainly we didn't, and lots of people did not know who was there. So, uh, you know, it was a win for intelligence. And uh, But yes, they certainly were taking measures to be secure, having no contact with the Internet and just using couriers in and out. And of course, it was, we're told, it was a, you know, tracking couriers was the way they ended up um, deciding that Osama must be located in there. Yeah. Um, and relative to that, I did tweet a reminder to everyone that hot topics, which are flashing across the Internet through Twitter and through email, still are getting people to click on links that they might not otherwise. That is, even trained people, when... Email comes in and it says, you know, post-mortem photo of bin Laden or, you know, a photo of, of one of his wives supposedly used as a human shield or something that in that moment of, oh, wow, you know, that's really newsy or I really want to see that, that can cause people to forget their training and, and click. And that has been happening in the, you know, ever since Sunday when this news broke, is there have there been a, I mean, immediately the bad guys jumped on this and used this to exploit just our, our interest in more information. Happens and every time. Yeah, it does. So I just wanted to take the opportunity to remind our listeners once again, you know, just, you know, even if, I mean, and that's the problem. The more you want what the come on is offering, the more likely you are to say, oh, well, no, maybe it's true. Maybe this is a photo. So just, you know. And there are no photos. In fact, uh, I see now yeah. the news story that the, the president has decided not to release any photos. So uh, if you see that somebody's offering photos, mm -mm, they don't exist. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the, 
the argument has been going back and forth. There have been some, you know, the news agencies, of course, would like it. That, but the, the point has been that there hasn't been a huge level of push and skepticism uh, from outside the, the United States for confirmation. Everyone, you know, is believing what we have. And, and frankly, Leo, you know that probably high, high up other heads of state have had access to. If nothing else, a diplomat, you know, would have opened the folder and said, see, here it is, and then closed it and put it back in his diplomatic satchel. So you, you can imagine that, you know, people who absolutely have to know uh, have had whatever, you know, level of convincing data that they've needed. That That's certainly going on behind the scenes. But, you know, that's the kind of thing you just don't want loose on the Internet or it'll, it'll never be pulled back. So, yeah. Um, had an interesting and disturbing story that Ars Technica reported that I wanted to share with our listeners in its entirety because Ars did a very good job. And it's another reminder. Uh, the story was PC retail store accused of using webcams and key loggers on customers. This is just in Ars Technica yesterday. Uh, they wrote, built-in webcams are becoming more and more common in computers these days. And in turn, they're becoming more and more of a liability. A Wyoming couple is now accusing national rent-to-own chain Aaron's, A-A-R-O-N, apostrophe S, Inc., of spying on them at home using their rented computer's webcam without their knowledge. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. Aaron's ends. also allegedly used a keylogger and took regular screenshots of the couple's activities on the machine, leading the couple to file a class action lawsuit in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Pennsylvania. According to the complaint filed on Tuesday, Aaron's has been using a product called PC Rental Agent on its rent-to-own machines since at least 2007 in order to, quote, surreptitiously access, monitor, intercept, and or transmit electronic communications made by Aaron's customers. Created by a company called Designware, PC Rental Agent is advertised as a way to keep track of rent-to-own computers and lock out customers who fail to pay. Okay, well, obviously it does way more than that. I mean, this is full-on spyware. According to the lawsuit, the product was sold to Aaron's under the guise that it was undetectable by users. And Aaron's apparently conceals the fact that it has the ability to monitor customers' activity when marketing its services. Crystal and Brian Bird, B-Y-R-D, Bird, found this out the hard way in 2010 when they rented a Dell Inspiron laptop from Aaron's, which they paid off in full in October 2010, one month ahead of schedule. Aaron's didn't record the last payment correctly, however, leading an Aaron's store manager to show up at the Bird home in December in order to repossess the computer. The store manager then produced a photo of Brian Bird using the machine, taken with the Inspiron's webcam as apparent proof that the birds were still using the computer. The birds ended up calling the police and an investigation later concluded that Aaron's routinely installed the PC rental agents 
on all of Aaron's rent-to-own computers. Law enforcement confirmed that the product indeed permitted the company to routinely take webcam photos, screenshots, and log the keystrokes of its customers without their knowledge or consent. It's unclear how many other photos Aaron's might have collected on the family. But Brian Bird told the Associated Press that he was concerned about the content of photos that were potentially taken of his wife and child. He said, Crystal gets online before she gets a shower and checks her grades. Who knows? They could print that stuff out off there and take it home with them, Bird told the Associated Press. Quote, I've got a five-year-old boy who runs around all day and sometimes he gets out of the tub running around for 20 to 30 for, for 20 to 30 seconds while we're on the computer. What if they took a picture of that? I wouldn't want that kind of garbage floating around out there, he said. The bird situation is eerily reminiscent of one that occurred last year in the, you're ready for it, Lower Marion School District uh -huh. in, in Pennsylvania. That's right which we talked about extensively mm -hmm. at the time. Um, some parents discovered that the school district had used remote software to activate the built-in webcams on the students' school issued computers in order to check up on them at home. While the district insisted that it's spying policy only applied to laptops that were reported stolen, which of course we know was not the case. The district ended up settling two lawsuits for a total of $610,000, despite apparent email evidence that the IT staff responsible for monitoring the laptops regularly viewed the students' photos for entertainment. According to Brian Bird, the computer in question is still in police custody as evidence, and no one from Aaron's has yet commented publicly on the case. However, the birds are hoping to get the suit certified as a class action so that other customers who might have been affected can get in on the lawsuit. After all, Aaron's claims to have more than 1,500 stores in the United States and Canada alone, and there are bound to be others who are only now discovering that they don't have as much privacy at home as they thought. As they thought. Yeah. As, they, as they should have, as as they as they, as they yeah, deserve, as they deserve. So, um, and that's another reminder. Um, I'm hoping that we will see physical shutters added to all webcams in the future, but we're not seeing them still. I mean, for example, all of the iPhones and iPads are shutterless, and and. Uh, I smile every time I go to Starbucks and I see a friend of mine uh, who I told about these things who just has a post-it note, uh, you know, the, the, the stick, a little sticky chunk of a post-it note stuck over the, the webcam on his laptop because he doesn't want to worry about, you know, his laptop staring at him and, and looking at him and, and getting infected with something that would do that. So um, it's simple physical security. Um, I have a a very high power laser um, which is dangerously powerful and and some of the the criteria for for having that is that you need a a key switch and a time delay from the time you turn it on and it actually energizes and a physical shutter so we have, you know, there's law in place that requires lasers of a certain power to be physically shutterable.
so that in the you know so you have multiple fail safes and it really is the case that our laptops should be the same way they mm -hmm. ought to they ought to you know just have something where you can slide it and this thing is blanked out it's a trivial thing to add and uh, we're still you, we not predicted this it. after the lower Marion thing that this would be in every laptop going forward and it is not and I I'm kind of surprised to be honest yeah, it really does need I me. Mean, we just need some pressure on the manufacturers to yeah. make that happen. It's an easy thing to do. And in weird news, but important, I thought, or just I wanted to mention it because we talk about Kaspersky so often, uh, Eugene Kaspersky's son, yeah. uh, Vanya, was kidnapped and safely returned. I didn't see that. That's good. And the bad guys were caught. Yes. In uh, On 422, on, on um, uh, April 22nd, Kaspersky's Kaspersky Lab posted a statement. Kaspersky Lab respectfully asks members of the media to refrain from speculating and distributing unconfirmed information about alleged events relating to the Kaspersky family. Eugene Kaspersky continues his day-to-day -day work at the company and has stated that the unconfirmed information being spread at the moment is harmful for the company. Then two days later, they posted the statement Kaspersky Lab confirms that an operation to free Ivan Kaspersky, I ought to mention that Ivan is his pseudonym, his son's pseudonym that he uses for posting and doing things online and in the company where his real name is Vanya. Um, so it says Operation to Free Ivan Kaspersky was carried out successfully by the Federal Security Services, FSB, the Criminal Investigation Department of the Moscow Police and Kaspersky Lab's own security personnel. Ivan is alive and well and is currently at a safe location. No ransom was paid during the operation to free him. Eugene Kaspersky and Natalia Kaspersky expressed their profound gratitude to those who participated in Ivan's release and to all those who supported them throughout the last few days. Both are currently unavailable for comment. And then he did also... Four days later, on the 28th, uh, Eugene has a Facebook page uh, where he po posted, among other things, that Vanya is back home safe and sound, and thanks for your support. So uh, that all came out well for them, which is wonderful. What a relief, yeah. Yeah. Um, we mentioned last week that the MySQL site itself, that is, the, the, the people who maintain... And, and develop and move the um, MySQL server project forward had been victims of a blind SQL injection attack. I, I ran across an extremely good treatment, a step-by-step -step coverage of exactly how this was done specifically on their site um, at a company called Acunetics, A-C-U-N-E-T-I-X.com. Um, if you go to acunetics.com, up, to up at the top, there's a link to their blog. And if you scroll down to their blog posting, mysql.com, victim of SQL injection attack, what you'll find is a, a very nice detailed treatment, step-by-step -step showing how this was done. Uh, we've talked about it in the past, so I didn't want to go through it again, but I know that we've got a, a broad audience and some might be really interested in the details uh, so you can find them there at acunetics.com uh, on their blog. A number of people in the wake of the recent concern about Dropbox's lack of security 
um, talked to me, uh, or actually tweeted, that's how I learned, learned about it through tweet, or through Twitter, uh, tweets. Twitter, about, Twitter, Twitter. Tw- tw- yeah. Just don't call it twit. <laughs> something that's in beta called Secret Sync, S-Y-N-C. Um, the site is getsecretsync.com. Um, I have not done a full analysis and appraisal. I did spend some time looking at the site, literally every page that they've got that's available. It's still rather sparse. Uh, It is in beta at this point. Um, And I think I remember seeing that you would have to have Java installed. So uh, there, I think it's Windows only, but it's going to be multi-platform. Thus, they're they're, they're using Java to get the multi-platform support which makes their job easier. Um, And everything I saw leads me to believe that they're doing everything right. That is, they're doing client-side encryption and decryption so that everything that is being stored in Dropbox, this is sort of a front-end for Dropbox. So you still get to keep your existing Dropbox account, your existing usage of Dropbox, but then installing this secret sync service creates an encrypted folder in addition to your regular Dropbox folder. And what, that, what it means is essentially that it is encrypting what you drop there before it leaves your machine. So it's, it's exactly the kind of security you want. They're saying that it's, you know, all of the responsibility for not losing your key that you create as part of setting this up is on you. That is, they don't have the key. They're they're storing nothing but pseudo-random noise, which you send them, which comes out of the encryption process. All of that is exactly the right-sounding thing. So again, I have not personally vetted this. I haven't installed it because um, I'm I'm not a Dropbox user, so I, I I can't vouch for it. But I wanted to tell people who said, "Hey, Steve." Look at Secret Sync. What do you think? What I think is, from everything I've seen, this looks like they've done the right thing. I don't know what plans they'll have in the future when it comes out of beta, whether they're going to charge people or, or what their deal is. But from, from everything I saw, you know, it looks really good. It does solve that uh, issue. That's for sure. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, were I a Dropbox user, <laughs> I would use this in a heartbeat. Well, we are, as you know. We use it heavily. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although you're you're using it more, yeah, for I don't care if people public. find your file exactly for <laughs> public stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we have seen the first fake AV software mm. targeting Mac users. Mm, terrible. Um, it's called. There is a legitimate product called Mac Defender, and so this one is a. This is malware masquerading as Mac Defender, which um, claims. You know, it, 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 it's the bogus AV stuff. It claims that Mac OS X has been infected and asks users who are who get themselves infected with this uh, for anywhere between $80 and $99 to purchase antivirus software to fix the problem. Um, it is apparently spreading through Google Images somehow. I don't know if it's... Uh, there's been no claim that it's the that the Google Images site itself is the problem. It may be infected images. I saw something, so, someone said that they was, he was looking for images of piranha, and I, I guess he got bitten. 
Um, so um, the one tip that I have for our listeners is that some Mac users in the past will have allowed Safari to open files which it deems safe after downloading them. And apparently it is people with this enabled which are getting caught. So under Safari, go to Preferences, General, and then uncheck the option for the, 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 the option called Open Safe Files After Downloading. Turn that off so that Safari doesn't do this automatically behind your back. Well, you, apparently you, no matter what you have checked, you still will be asked for a password. Does really? not, yeah. That's, to that's install my software. So, so yes. people must be doing that. Yeah, oh yeah, but that's the problem. At least this was my understanding. We discussed this yesterday okay. on uh, MacBreak Weekly. But that's the problem. It's the same problem with UAC on Windows, which is you get kind of fatigued and you go, yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, exactly. Apple, at least, unlike UAC, even if you're running as an administrator, you still must enter the password. Right. So What was so the... There was a joke uh, Saturday night at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Um, shoot, I, I remember the punchline now, but I can't remember what the joke was. <laughs> was it Seth Meyers or... Uh, I don't remember what, whether it was Seth or Barack. I think it was Seth. And, and the punchline was that... Oh, shoot... It was that I'm sure that most of us uh, treat this the way we do um, updating uh, terms and conditions on oh, iTunes. Yeah. There was a little slam against that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, think that was Seth Meyers. Yeah, that can't was pretty remember, funny. Though, yeah. yeah, it was really yeah. great. <laughs> Which shows you how... Uh, how uh, no, and, and, and everyone knew what he meant. Yes. Everyone, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah we yeah. all know. Two updated terms and conditions. Yeah, click. You know, and so on. On we move. So to so. be clear, it will auto download if you have that uh, turned on. The issue is, it will not even if you run it manually or automatically. You will have to give a password. This is true in, in any case. Even if you're running an administrator, you will have to give a password before it installs. So the problem is, it looks pretty credible. I mean, it's a it's a pretty credible looking. You know, it's no well obvious done, misspellings, huh? no grammatical errors. Um, but, you know, we just have to drill into people's heads. You don't just randomly. The problem is, I guess, if you clicked saying, yes, I want this thing, of course you're going to give it permission to install. You've already been fooled. Yeah. It's terrible. Don't don't so, be fooled by pop-ups. Yeah, exactly. So we have a lot more on uh, our attacks and breaches section uh, mostly about Sony. Um, the, the, the news, the, the, the real news we have is that apparently the breach went further than just the PlayStation Network, such that on Sunday night, the Sony Online Entertainment System, which is their online PC games network, was also shut down. Yeah. And they sent email to... Um, another set of users, and I remember seeing the number 12.5 million. So there were, I mean, there there are still problems happening. Um, uh, Brian Krebs, our, our security follower and watcher, captured some screenshots, which I saw, which then other people, which sort of annoyed him, other people were taking his screenshots and, and redisplaying them as the, their own without giving him any credit, um, which were of some forums where where the people posting appeared 
uh, appeared to be saying that there were 2.2 million credit cards up for sale. And also, someone was claiming that Sony had been given the opportunity to, to buy the database back, but had not responded. Um, and th there have been continuing reports uh, surfacing of credit card details being sold on Carter forums, uh, as they're called. And at least in one case, there was a report that, the, that a Sony administrative password had been compromised, which may have given people access to, to more. So, I mean, it's, it really is a mess. Now, Sony has said in, a, in an interview that was conducted in, um, in Japanese and translated um, that the passwords were hashed. That is, they were not encrypted. There was some miscommunication initially. They're saying that they were not encrypted, but they were hashed, which is essentially the same thing. We, we hope that it was a salted hash. That's the that issue, is, isn't it? We've talked about that before. Yeah. Uh, uh, otherwise, rainbow tables could be used in order to, to reverse the hashes. And, and then I'm wondering, I mean, I guess Sony really messed this up from a communication standpoint because they really scared people by telling people that if you use the same username and password anywhere else, that you had to go change it. But if they had properly cryptographically hashed the passwords, and if that's the only thing that the bad guys got, then those, that, that, that is an irreversible process. If you have a salted hash and the salt isn't known, then, and, and hopefully the salt would have been stored separate from the database. I mean, you wouldn't expect it to be in, you know, in, in, it would be in the algorithm and not in the customer records. Right. Um, then, then it's as good. I mean, it, that is encrypted. It is, it is a one, I mean, it's even better than encrypted because in, in typical encryption, you can reverse and a salted hash. You cannot reverse. Right. It is inherently a one way process. So, so they really scared people probably unnecessarily if in fact they had hashed it well. We just really, we really don't know. And if you're puzzled um, about salt, I think this show on uh, randomness will help understand a little bit of that, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I got a, a tweet from uh, Leon Zandman uh, who sent me an interesting uh, link to a new posting uh, at Career Builder. Now, on on May, I'm sorry, April 20th, on, on 420, the PlayStation Network outage began. On 421, <laughs> Sony posted a on Career Builder uh, for looking to hire a senior application security analyst in San Diego. Well, it's which about is, time where they're located. Now, the good news is it's a full-time position. Yes. <laughs> and under required travel, it says none, which is good. We want that person to stay put, yes. stay, stay in San Diego, and, uh, and do their full-time job. No traveling of, uh, allowed, yeah. Making, this more, making us more secure. Uh, and as I predicted last week, uh, lawsuits have been filed against Sony for this. I mean, I, I feel badly for them, but, um, uh, and again, it's unfortunate this happened. Uh, and I guess we'll, we'll some, there'll be some court battles to decide what culpability uh, was on the, you know, 
uh, was on Sony's side of this. Um, there was an Xbox Live podcast uh, where they took the opportunity to mention that the Xbox Live people take security very seriously, was what they said. And so we're all glad to hear Thank that. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Just in case you were puzzled or worried. In case you people who are on Xbox and not on Sony were yeah. concerned. And then in an example of something done really well, that is of, of the kind of confession that you really want to see, although you never want to see the problem, uh, DSLR, DSL Reports, was also breached uh, through, I believe it was a botnet. Uh, in fact, I'm sure it was, or they, they believe it was. They said that 8% of their historical users, now this goes way back in time too, 8% of their users' username and passwords were stolen. Um, they made a very responsible posting. They said, what happened? Um, and, 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 and I regarded this as the proper way to report and take responsibility for the breach. They said, in brief, an SQL injection attack by a botnet. Also, it was both. It was SQL injection. That's what I thought I remembered. But it was conducted by a botnet on Wednesday afternoon. So that would have been one week ago today. Obtained a large number of email and password pairs. The ones they obtained were basically random. So they cover the entire 10-year history of the membership, but were sprinkled randomly throughout that. Some are very old accounts. Some are new accounts. Some inactive and deleted. And so I'm reading from this posting where the, where the poster said, I identified the newest accounts, those that were obtained and have logged in over the last 12 months, and have alerted those by email. This amounts to some 9,000 accounts. If your email slash password was revealed, you received the alert email or discovered your login password has been changed by us already, you also, you also need uh, to think of what other sites you use allowing logins using the same registered email address and password. So, so in this case of DLSR, DSLR, they were not hashing the passwords. And the email and associated login did get loose. Some sites, I know, some sites, especially email services like Gmail and PayPal and Facebook, allow login by email and password. If you are in the habit of sharing the same password among many sites, then the people who obtain this data from us can log in as you. So you should secure your access to those sites by changing your password there immediately. Your first priority would be your primary email account if the password was shared with it. It is unclear how much data the logged intrusion requested. Actually, oh, how, how, how much data the logged intrusion requested which actually reached them. The site was quite unresponsive during the attack. And whether that data is being used yet, we don't know. I'm going on a worst case scenario here. It is also clear, it is also unclear whether the emails obtained will be spammed or just searched for high value targets such as PayPal, Gmail, Google Docs, etc. Older inactive accounts involved 
are also being notified by email now, although the older the account, the less likely the email is still current or the password they use is still useful. Obviously, having both an SQL injection attack hole now closed and also storing plain text passwords as we were is a big black eye for us. And I'll be addressing these problems as fast as I, and carefully as I can. My apology for any stress this causes. If you are like me, you've also got the PSN network issue hanging over your head as well. Judging from the replies to the initial email, the impact is varied. Some people used a unique email or unique password for the site, and others use the same password everywhere and will have to be much more careful. So that was what was posted in, in DSLR's blog, and I have to salute them and this, this person for being as, as, I mean, really taking responsibility and being as forthright as he was. I mean, certainly no one wants to ever have to generate a blog posting like that. Um, they also had a, a short Q&A. They said in, in the Q&A, a large network botnet of compromised Windows machines circumvented individual IP access limits on, unac on unusual activity. The attack was blocked before it had completed more than 8% of its work. And then under a question, they ask themselves, what is the likely use for the data gained? The answer is gained access to email accounts, gaining access to accounts at PayPal, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, or other sites where login is via email and a password. Question, what kind of shoddy operation are you running here? <laughs> and they... And again, I salute them for, I mean, they posted this question. Answer, not making excuses, but it is sobering to read that just recently MySQL.com was hacked with an identical approach to the one used here, blind SQL injection. More MySQL-based sites will suffer the same issue this year. So users should take care to reduce their password reuse on multiple sites to at, mo to at most high, medium, low value passwords, a common low value passwords for forums, etc., unique ones for banking, etc. And that's actually a good strategy. If you don't want to go through the trouble of maintaining an, a truly unique password for every site, or for example, if you're not using LastPass to automatically do that for you, then you are able, you know, you could absolutely regard you know some passwords as low value and and allow yourself to reuse them for example for posting in forums but absolutely use known unique ones uh, for banking purposes so anyway I, I it's unfortunate that DSLR got hacked uh, but they couldn't have, a, have handled it any more responsibly than they did so I take my hat off to them um, I tweeted earlier uh, this week that I had finally had a chance to sit down and spend some time with and start using Certificate Patrol, which is an add-on I mentioned um, blindly last week that I had that I knew of, I'd found out about, uh, also through Twitter, and uh, hadn't had a chance to look at it. I called it in my tweet a terrific Firefox add-on for the security-aware power user. Five-star Security Now rating, a total win. And I continue to feel that way. So I wanted to follow up on last week's mention of it uh, for those people who 
are not following me on on Twitter and say, I'm really happy with this thing. Um, it's popping up uh, as it's designed to whenever I go to a site that I have not a secured HTTPS, you know, SSL site that I have not yet visited since I had installed it. And so when, when it when it's when it's caching those sites, that's when I am I'm I'm being shown information about the the certificate being used, how long it's been there, how much longer it has till it expires, and who the issuer of the certificate is. So so far, um, I haven't run across an instance where one that it already has has expired, but it will notify me of that explicitly. Nor certainly have I run across one where I'm going to a site where everything seems changed about the certificate, which would be a real red flag indicating that that you you know tech, that potentially you're being spoofed somehow. So again, I call it a add-on for the SecurityWare power user because initially, as you're going to SSL enabled sites, you're going to be seeing these pop-ups a lot. It pops up and it's it's a modal dialog, meaning in Windows terms, that you have to say OK and close it before you're able to proceed, um, which is actually what you want in the case of something coming up and being bad. Um, I'm also, it's, it's interesting, I'm using it to learn about the sites that, the, the, the certificate authorities that other of the major popular sites that I go to are are using, and and the, this is not something I ever really like took the trouble to research before. Now it's just being given to me, and one of the things that I'm seeing is that major people are using Digicert, Facebook, and Sony. I, I, I went to Sony's site naturally in the last week doing some research for this podcast. They're both using did the Digicert High Assurance Certificate Authority um, uh, thought is being used by Google and Equifax is being used by level three. Um, some various sites that I happen to have, have been visiting in over SSL recently, but did DigiCert's pricing is very good. So there's a chance that VeriSign is finally going to leave, finally going to lose me after all these years because their pricing is the worst. That is to say the highest there is Thousands, in the industry. Right? Yeah. It's insanely expensive. And for example, I don't have a, a, a fancy make your, URL turn green cert, um, you know, an extended validation, an EV cert, because they're too expensive from VeriSign. It's just, and, and it's not like I only have to pay that once. I've got to pay it every time. So as I'm seeing, you know, people like Facebook, I mean, if any CA that Facebook is using is obviously in every browser on the planet. Um, so that's all I really need is a, a certificate authority that's going to be issuing certificates that I'm sure that everyone's browser will be able to receive. And and I'm seeing now that a lot of high-profile sites are using DigiCert, so that's good enough for me. So, you know, VeriSign's got to get with the program here. Um, maybe they'll just stay ultra-high-end, you know, uh, you know, level three uses them, but <laughs> but GRC, uh, unless they check fix their pricing, I think they're going to lose me. So it's been an interesting education, and the certificate patrol is a is a handy little add on for Firefox. Cool, yeah. Um, uh, I received a tweet from, or I saw a tweet uh, from Gabe Ormsby, Ormsby, who who tweeted something that I pointed out 
which was that password length limits are a strong hint that they're not hashed passwords on the server end. And when I saw that go by, I thought, yeah, that is a good point. And I wanted to just remind our users of it. We're all now becoming aware of the problem of, of people we rely on to protect our data. For example, Sony and, and, and you know, <laughs> others where, you know, we're trusting them. Right. Well, if you are... If you are presented with a length limit, and I've seen them, for example, passwords must be between 8 and 16 characters long, seems typical. I mean, that's a very good clue. Minim a minimum's okay. It's, it's the maximum that's scary. Right, because what that implies is that in their SQL database, which, you know, the hackers are currently trying to get into, um, they've got a 16-character field, which into which your, you, know, you can put a password of up to 16 characters. What you, we want is them to have a 256-bit field, which is, what, 16 characters? Yeah, 16 bytes. And, and we want them to hash however long a password you give them and not worry about it. So that is to say where where they're not see, they're not imposing a length limit on the user when they do it implies they're storing the password itself so you know that's just a, a little tip off when you um when you see that you might write a note to their support people or their security people or their their privacy people whatever and say hey um how are you storing this password of mine um are you hashing it or not and because, salted hash is what you want right yes Yes. Even a hash by itself is not as good as a salted hash. True, because a, a hash is, is going to be using a known algorithm. And it's, it's, um, it's for example, if the, if the bad guys created an account on that service and then stole their own hash, they, oh. would, be, they would know both the plain text password and the hash, and they could then run that through a bunch of all of the various hashing algorithms and quickly determine which one was being used by that site. And then that oh, would allow wow. them, if, if it weren't salted, that would allow them to apply the, you know, to, to know what the hash was and then grab the rainbow table that's appropriate and see about uh, re reversing the hashes. So, you know, still ha hashing is way better than not. Salting is what everyone who's hashing certainly should be doing, but storing in plain text is <sighs> just bad idea and if they're giving you a limit on the length you you're able to store that's that really does raise a red flag it's like oh okay. and that's because hashing kind of changes the length anyway well actually hashing no matter what you you, you could put in a one character password and, you get the same and it would length. give you a 256 bit hash the no hash what. yes okay. the output is always the same fixed length it's 128 for 128-bit hash, 256 bits for 256-bit hash, and so forth. Um, and then lastly, uh, Jared Redmond, uh, whose Twitter handle is JSHOQ, uh, sent me uh, a note just mentioning that Bank of America offers one-time use credit cards and even, as you mentioned, Leo, last week, recurring payments mm. to a single vendor. That's what we want. So I wish my I wish Chase did that, um, but no such luck so far. May also and, depend uh, on the card you get, I guess. Yeah. yeah.
under miscellaneous gizmos, uh, something is going on with Bitcoin. I don't know what it is, but I mentioned that last week, I think it was, or no further back than the week before, I think it was last week, that they were at a dollar something, a little over like a dollar ten or dollar twenty or something. It's now at three fifty. Wow. So a single Bitcoin is now trading for three dollars and fifty cents in US dollars. Um, I checked this morning to see what it was because I'd uh, I got a tweet either from Bitcoin or from someone notifying me. I don't remember which, but it's like, whoa. So, you know, those Bitcoins are becoming valuable. <laughs> they add up. I'm, I'm glad I got 50 of them. Um, and Leo, I just meant to ask you, I keep seeing commercials for the BlackBerry Playbook, and I know that on the show we mentioned you had just received it, or I guess maybe after they, toward the end of a podcast a couple of weeks ago, yeah. you were just unboxing it. Uh, what do you think? Well, I'm playing right now, I'm playing uh, Need for Speed uh, Undercover, which was designed, uh, it says, when you launch it for the playbook. And you can see the, the power of the Tegra 2. I mean, this isn't hardware-wise. This is nice. Now, watch. Remember, we're running QNX. I can slide up, and the multitasking continues. And you see I have other things going, including, oh, there's Steve, playing back, by the way, in Flash. Uh, now, uh, it's fake multitasking, as you can see, because it's paused the Flash. But there we go. There's the, the live thing. And... It plays for a little bit, but the game is stopped over there. But it kind of feels like real multitasking. Uh, we also have the uh, MediaFly has made the Twit application available, so that's kind of nice. You can watch them after the fact. But having Flash in a browser is cool. It's a nice browser. It's, a, it's very much like the um, uh, WebKit-based browsers on the iOS devices. In fact, I'm sure it's WebKit-based. Uh, it seems to work very well. You can zoom in and zoom out and all of that stuff. Um, I do like the multitasking. I think really the only thing wrong with it is the dearth of software. It's not, you know, it's a nice form factor. It's it's a little thick, it's, you know, compared to the iPad 2. Uh, but it has a lot more, you know, in terms of capabilities. It uses USB, micro USB charging. Um, uh, you know, it's got a camera front and back that's, I think, better than the, uh, than the iPad's camera. Um, I, I like it a lot. I mean, I think it's a, it's a nice device hardware-wise. We just have to wait until, uh, and, and, and by the way, the OS really is well done. We just have to wait until there's more applications. Remember, they're going to make it possible to run Android apps in emulation. It, right. I, we haven't seen that yet, so we don't know how well it does with Android maps. Oh, so it was, maps. didn't have that at all? Out, no, out it's not box. out yet. And then they also have a developer kit that makes it supposedly uh, easy for developers to port uh, to Android, uh, from Android to uh, the playbook. Mm. So that could help the problem. I mean, it's one of those chicken and egg things. You've got a new operating system, a new platform, and you maybe haven't sold a whole lot of them yet. Uh, you've got to convince developers that it's worth the investment to write software for it. And you've got to convince people to buy the hardware, even if there's no software out there for it. I mean, this doesn't right. even come with an email app or a, a calendar app. <laughs> and, and, you can't, and you can't get one yet? No. Oh, my goodness. Uh, the, now, I'm sure there'll be third-party versions. If you have a BlackBerry now, you can use their bridge technology to put email on it. And, you know, if you look, it says, oh, email. But what it really is is it's using the browser. So if you have browser-based email, you can do it. Right. But, right. Uh, it, it, you know, I mean, it's not uh, what I would call true email. So yeah. they've got a little ways to go. It's, 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 you know, it's nice hardware, and the OS is very snappy, feels really good. Uh, I think they've done a nice job that way. Uh, but still, uh, in all, I wouldn't say get it instead of an iPad, too. It's the same price. Oh, and no 3G option. It's Wi-Fi only. 
So um, it's just too mm. limited. And I think the problem is, Paul Thorat talks about Windows Phone 7 in the same context. It would be one thing if there weren't an iPad. Right. But there is. <laughs> in the shadow of the iPad, yeah. good luck. Yeah, it's just, it's just yeah. very tough uh, to uh, um, compete against an existing platform with hundreds of thousands of applications available. By the way, while you've been talking about downloading the uh, iPhone 4 update, I don't know if this is intentional. It's a little weird. 666 megabytes. 666. Wow. It's a satanic download. Wow. Well, I think that, uh, you know, that, and they say in the notes that all they're fixing is this location database. But I don't think they have the capability of doing vector-based uh, OS updates. I think you have to download the entire firmware each time. They just can't do a delta. No delta. Not, yeah. Wow. Not vector, delta. Wow. Uh, let's take a break. Um, did you want to do a spin right or anything? Or Yeah, I've got a few more little oh, there's more I, want I to see talk about. Good Morning America. Did, did well, that happen? Uh, no, and I didn't want to follow up because a number of people, I get, I get uh, you know, questions pretty much every day. Whatever happened with Good Morning America? And I have no idea. My guess is that, you know, they, they may use the footage. It, it may just be in storage until a high-profile breach of some sort uh, actually happens, and then they'll they'll sort of dust me off uh, uh, because that's what they originally had me come up to talk about. Um, they may have decided that the fire sheep issue was just too scary or you know, a little too geeky and not mainstream enough for their you know mothers doing the iron uh, ironing in the morning uh, crowd. Who knows? Uh, but as far as I know, I mean, it's been so long now that I'm guessing it's just not going to happen. Um, I've also had a lot of people say, Steve, would really love to have the uh, Tech Talk columns from the old days of InfoWorld, which came up. I guess it must have been when you and, and John and Jerry and I were doing Twit on Sunday a few weeks ago, Leo, uh, that, that we were talking about the InfoWorld column. Um, I wanted to mention... Are you going to do what he suggested? Well, um, I, I've been struggling towards it. I just found the DAT tapes, which were oh, my back. My God, they're These on are, DATs. <laughs> yes, uh, all of the backups. I mean, I, I see one here that is labeled uh, C colon and D colon August first ninety six. So uh, I remembered at the time that the machine I was using. I think I was under Windows three one. I know that I published the books, the Passion for Technology books in Ventura which was the, the premier uh, sort of geeky uh, publishing tool at the time. I think Adobe had theirs, but I was over on Ventura, cause, and it started off in, on the Gem yeah. platform, actually. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, um, because and, if you just took all the text of the columns, it'd probably fit on floppy. Yeah, yeah. Um, although I did, I did a a um, a diagram. I went back. the The column typically did not have diagrams, and so I mean, I really put a wow. lot of effort into republishing the columns. That's great. Uh, and the when people were asking for them, it's like, uh, yeah, uh, they're around here somewhere. And literally, I I knew that they were uh, on a hard drive that I probably have, but I knew, also know that I was backing them up on DAT tape. Constantly. Now, now here's the big uh, that question. Was my backup medium. Do you have the DAT player? I do. I've got two drives and the software. So I kept it. In fact, what I don't have is a parallel port because it was a parallel port interface. <laughs> so, so I bought, I purchased a PCI 
uh, a PCIe, I think it is, to parallel port oh, adapter card so that I could stick a parallel port in one of my current machines in order, and then I'm going to have to set up a DOS partition and because this thing ran ran under DOS and oh my God. Uh, it looked a little bit like Xtree as I remember the UI. So and then, you yeah. know, to be honest, it's '96. This is 15 years ago. Yeah. This is something we got to keep in mind that these data formats have the shelf life of a fruit fly, and you really got to either keep up or uh, say goodbye. Because, I mean, how many people really? I mean, it ha I, nobody has zip drives, dad drives, the software. Right. You, you know, I mean, this stuff is, is, it gets antiquated so fast. It's where me being a pack rat comes in handy. Yeah. I actually smart. had all this stuff. Yeah. So. so that's good. Now, so we can at some point expect an ebook with the columns of Steve Gibson. And I, it'll be free. I would never charge. Oh, Steve, for why not? Oh. A buck fifty. Uh, no, I just um, I just rather make it available. And I'd like it to be it in P, you know in in in, um, in PDF yeah, and, and unprotected uh, open un standard. Absolutely, yeah. it's just for people. To, I mean, I mean, as as you said, Leo, it's fifteen years old. Oh, it's like, yeah, okay. but it's great stuff. And a lot. I bet you it's more. Have you read it yet? I bet you there's a lot of good stuff. More there, of it's actually. germane than you might think. Yeah, it's surprising, actually. As, as you look through this, it's like, wow, nothing's changed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, I have, I have, I think, a reading assignment for our listeners. Ooh, I love that. I fire uh, up my Kindle. You know, I bought that new Kindle with the ad-supported Kindle just to yeah. see what the ads are. It's not bad. Yeah. Instead oh, of those good. woodcuts, they got the ads. Because they are adding... You know, I mean, they're they're advertising it on TV now at one fourteen, and I always kind of grumble when I see that, thinking, "Well, is that really false advertising?" Because it is ad supported, but it's not it's not in your face, huh? No, when you're once you're reading, it's gone. It's just the instead of the beautiful woodcuts, which I do miss, you know, that is the screensaver. It puts an ad there. Those are rotated quite a bit. They're different all the time. And then when you're on the menu page, there's a little bar at the bottom that's an ad. That's all. It's, I think, very unobtrusive. I wish you saved more. You only saved $25. But still, 114 bucks for a Kindle. It's yeah. not bad. That's my, I yeah. think, my fourth or fifth Kindle now. <laughs> okay, so our friend Mark Rusinovich, who we have spoken of many times, mm -hmm. Uh, he's famously known as one of the two main, well, one, one of the two guys behind the Sys Internals website. And Sys Internals tools have been used by all of us security people. I mean, they've got like, you know, great process explorer and all kinds of low level tools. I mean, I've used them for years. And of course, we know with a bit of a tear, uh, Microsoft bought Sys Internals, which I'm sure was good for Mark. And I'm, I'm glad for that. About a month ago, uh, he sent me a tweet saying, Hey, Steve, um, I'd like to send you a copy of my new book. Uh, where can I send it? And I, I got my address back to him, and Federal Express arrived the next day. Now, the good news is uh, it is available in e-format for the Kindle. So I, I bought it because I wanted to read it on the Kindle, but I really am, am tickled to have a physical copy of it from him. The book is fiction. And I had to stop myself from reading it last night because, and I'm, it'll be finished way before you hear from me again. It's called Zero Day. Yeah, we it, saw that he did that, that it's fic a, it, a novel. It is good. Is it good? See, that was my concern. It's like, well, Mark's a great programmer. He's a brilliant systems um, guy. But. I mean, I, yes, um, it is... The, re the reason I call it a reading assignment is, I mean, it is 
factually accurate and chilling. Um, he basically, and I, I'm, I'm at the 50% point. I'm exactly at 50%. That's when I finally said, okay, stop reading, Steve. You got to go to sleep so you can do the podcast in the morning. Um, and I can't wait to finish it. I have a sneaking suspicion of what's going to happen and where he's going to go with it. But it is, it is really good. Um, he, he does a very good job of painting the picture of the way we've become so dependent upon computers and what would happen if, uh, if this continues as we expect and, and how it could happen that something really bad would happen. Uh, anyway, it's fiction. I wouldn't quite call it science fiction. I mean, it's it's really grounded in fact, but it's and it's not a long read. It's just very pleasant. So um, I haven't finished it yet. I'm, I'm as I said, I'm fifty way fifty percent of the way. But I wanted to give our our listeners a heads up that uh, that you know someone we've spoken of who really knows his way around the technology has written a book based on this technology and i mean it, it's like a fictionalized version of this podcast because you know all the things that we've talked about are the root kits and and viruses and propagation and you know nuclear reactors i mean it's weird that this thing came out when it did relative to things that have been going on so um i just so far i can really recommend it uh, i i think it's a nice piece of work i can't wait to read it it is it yeah. is on amazon as you said it's available for kindle uh, there is no audio book, unfortunately. Zero yeah, it, day. It would be too soon, I would think, for an audio. Don't, don't, don't audios tend to lag a little bit? Because, you know, you got to have some time for someone to read them. Depends on the publisher. Uh, lately, oh. if it's... And I think this is because it's, you know, it's not a well-known author. But lately, a lot of stuff is coming out day and date uh, with the uh, print version. Very okay, much so more common. A short note from James, he called himself Jay Truesdale, who is a podcast listener. The subject is Spinrite's temperature sensor. And he said, Dear Steve, I have, I finally have a Spinrite story to share, but not like any other I've heard so far. I went to look at a friend's computer that was really running slow. I pointed out the whine that was coming from the computer as a bad sign and got to work on the usual Windows cleanup, including running the defragger. It was still slow afterwards, and I was out of time, so I took the computer home so I could continue working on it there. I let Spinrite loose on the SATA hard drive and came back later to check on its progress. I found a message from Spinrite stating that the drive was overheating. I shut down the computer and checked for ventilation problems and found none. I swapped out the friend's hard disk for one of my own hard disks, putting it into his machine and ran Spinrite again. Spinrite ran just fine with my hard disk, so I knew there was not a ventilation problem and that the original hard disk was suspect. I ordered a new hard disk, and when it arrived, I ran Spinrite on the new hard disk. No problems were reported. I hooked both hard drives to the computer and used a small fan to keep the drives cool, and then used the open source tool CloneZilla to copy the old hard disk to the new hard disk. The new hard disk booted right up, and Windows XP seems to be running just fine now. I don't know why the original hard disk was running hot, but due to Spinrite's temperature warning, we were able to replace the hard disk before any data was lost. Thanks for the great podcast, James Truesdale. You don't have a thermometer in Spinrite. 
one of the things that SpinRite does is it continually pulls the drive's smart data. We talked about smart data being sometimes turned off. SpinRite checks and then and turns it on and notifies the user that is doing so, so that it's able to keep an eye on the drive on the fly while it's running. And actually, this is one of the coolest things SpinRite does is that, you know, smart, the self-monitoring, reporting, and report self-monitoring um, and reporting technology um, is it's useful sort of but where you really want it is to be monitoring the smart data while the drive is under stress that is while it's actually doing work that's when the parameters will demonstrate that the drive is having a problem but that's not normally the way smart is used it's the way SpinRite uses it and as far as I know SpinRite is unique in the industry in doing so. And in fact, when I was developing it, a lot of people in the forum were saying, oh, Steve, I don't know if you're able to pull smart data on the fly while you're using the drive. And I said, well, we're going to find out. And it turns out we've never had a problem with that. Of course, I, you know, I wrote it carefully. Um, but one of the things it does is it pulls the drive's temperature constantly. And if it exceeds the manufacturer's upper safe temperature limit, SpinRite will stop. Because it turns out the act of running SpinRite will generate more heat from the drive because it's seeking constantly. It's, you know, tick, 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 from one cylinder to the next. And each of that generates some mechanical um, energy, which ends up actually increasing the drive's temperature. And we find often, or more often than on desktops, laptop drives will overheat when they're like, you know, not in a place where um, they're able to get enough ventilation because laptops notoriously have a problem being so small and with, you know, needing to have small fans and just small air openings, they have a hard time moving enough air across their little drives to keep to keep them cool. And, you know, oftentimes, unfortunately, ventilation is is an afterthought. Right. So that's just one more little goodie that SpinRite brings. Tis a goodie. Coming up, we're going to talk about how random numbers work on a deterministic thing like a computer. Uh, how would you make something random? I mean, truly How do you random. get randomness when there's nothing random there? <laughs> we'll do that in just a second. Before we do, though, I want to talk a little bit about something that is far from random. It is something near and dear to my heart. I've been a member since 2000, 11 years. I'm talking about Netflix.com. Netflix is that great site where you can... Get DVDs by mail in as little as one business day. I have the five DVDs at a time account, which I think is the maximum. So that means I have five DVDs at home. When I watch one and I'm done with it, pop it, and I can take as long as I want. There's no late fees. I just pop it in the mail, and the turnaround is almost instantaneous, and I get the next DVD from my queue. But a couple of years ago, they added something, and I have to tell you, <laughs> at this point, I rarely watch DVDs because I am now a huge fan of Netflix Watch Instantly. And, and maybe you've heard about this and thought, well, they can't possibly have good movies on here. Oh, they do. They have great new movies on here, including a lot of TV shows. Look, all 76 episodes of the most recent Battlestar Galactica. You know, I missed some, so I can go back and I can, I can get those again. Remember Twin Peaks? That's on here, too. But look at some of the, uh, the newer movies that, uh, that are on here. Um, the Lord of the Rings, Salt. I missed that. Loved it, by the way. Watched it on Netflix. The Other Guys, Toy Story 3. There's a huge variety of movies, television shows, and you don't have to put up a queue or anything. You could just watch them right now 
by pressing the play button on your computer, on your Xbox 360, on your uh, PlayStation 3, uh, even uh, on your Wii. And, of course, the Roku box. And many TVs and Blu-ray players now have Netflix built in. It's kind of the gold standard. If you've got Internet connectivity on, uh, on a TV set, you better have Netflix built in. So every, every time we talk about Netflix, I want to recommend a movie. Because, you know, you get your first 30 days free if you go to Netflix.com slash twit. So it's a great way if you've not tried Netflix, particularly if you've not tried Netflix Instant Watch, uh, to try it. And I was just looking down here, and I can't, I've not seen this, but it's gonna, I'm going to watch it tonight. There's a documentary on here about uh, Harlan Ellison, uh, who is the, one of the most interesting and prickly sci-fi authors out there. He's a brilliant guy, a great thinker. It's called Dreams with Sharp Teeth. The hmm. life, isn't that great? Talk He's about great. sharp teeth. And the, it's also fitting for him. Yeah, no kidding. I cannot wait to watch this. Documentaries are one of those things you don't often see in theaters. You often miss... Uh, it's really nice to be able to, if you're in the mood to watch a documentary, to watch one. But, of course, you can also watch stuff that's that's just completely mind candy, like Glee or The Twilight Zone. Uh, I just love Netflix. I am such a fan. And I want you to try it free right now. Netflix.com slash twit. And pay special instant in, uh, attention to the Watch Instantly uh, tab on the page because there's so many great movies there uh, that you can watch. You see, I have a, a DVD queue of 234 movies. I have a Watch Instantly queue of 358 movies. I don't really need a queue for Watch Instantly because you can just pick whatever you want. But when I think of a movie, oh, I've got to see that, I'll add it to the queue so that I don't forget. These are all the movies. I, I should just stop going to work for a couple of years and I could just watch Netflix all day, all night. I really could. Netflix.com slash twit. If you haven't been a Netflix member yet, or maybe you've been a member and you haven't uh, tried it lately, give it a try. And by the way, it makes a great gift. I give my mom Netflix every single year for her birthday. A year's worth of great movies. And she loves it, especially the Watch Instantly stuff. She does it all the time. Steve, let's talk random numbers. What do you say? Well, so, okay. Um, one of the reasons that I've always been a little bit annoyed by the people who talk about security through obscurity is no security is that it's not quite correct. I mean, and I've 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 hedged that often because there are the the fact is there is always a secret of some kind in security. Um, you know, it may be you know the the jaggedy the, the exact pattern of jaggedy teeth on a key that you insert in the key. Whole, or, you know, your fingerprint that you want to keep secret and you don't want to spread around. As we've talked about people, you know, being scanned at, at Disneyland. Um, but in all of the crypto that we've talked about, uh, anytime we're establishing an SSL connection to a remote location or uh, we're, we're um, encrypting a file just you know in place or encrypting a drive um, we're providing um, some sort of authentication um, and oftentimes a password but separate from that there is a secret key um, in some cases in the case of asymmetric encryption public key encryption you've got two two different keys one able to encrypt and the other able to decrypt that is to reverse 
what the first one does. But, but again, um, at least one of them in, in typical use is kept secret. Um, and remember that, that even asymmetric encryption is, is so slow that it doesn't actually encrypt the payload. You don't actually, even if you're using public key encryption, you're, you're not actually using the public key to, to encrypt the bulk data. Instead, you, you come up with a random key, and that's what you encrypt with the public, the, the asymmetric public key, and then you use that random key to actually do the data encryption, to do symmetric encryption, which is vastly faster. But in all of these scenarios where you're using SSL to connect to a remote location, um, you're, you're encrypting a file, you're encrypting a drive, you always have some sort of key. And, and that key is typically generated by some sort of random number generator. Well, the problem, and this is a problem that, that goes way back in time, is that, as we know, computers are completely deterministic. That is, given a, a known starting state with known programs and known inputs, they will always follow a path of instructions and jumps and, and so forth. I mean, it may be, and, and typically is, incredibly complicated, but it's... It's deterministic. It, you know, the, the program is always going to do the same thing, given the same program, the same instructions, and, and the same com computer that's executing them. So, so the question is, okay, that's unfortunately not what we want in the case of getting something random. So, so let's step back a little bit and say, well, okay, what's the goal here? The, the goal is that say that we were we were encrypting a communication we we want to and we don't you know we're not going to password protect it we just want you know point a wants to talk to point b such as for example over an ssl connection so we we need to we need to come up with a symmetric encryption key that cannot be guessed that is that is that is unknown and practically unknowable by by an attacker and so if we have if we when we bring an attacker in we need to define what the threat model is for for sort of like what it is we're trying to achieve and by that i mean if the computer we're using were compromised that is, if there was already malware in the machine, which is able to to see what the computer's doing, well, you can you can, you know, anything you used to generate a key, no matter how good, for example, it was as a source of randomness. Once this source of randomness had arrived at a at a, a final key, if you're if the machine you're trying to use, which you're assuming is secure, is not then it doesn't matter how good your source of randomness is. You've got something bad in your computer, malware, which is able to, to, to grab your key. So obviously that's, that's not the, the threat model that we're trying to guard against in establishing a secure, a secure communication between two points. 
because we can't guard against it. There is no there is no practical means to guarantee that with the way our computers are designed today. In a in that sort of scenario, in a communication scenario, we're we're dealing with a situation where the bad guy has no access to the key. They may have access to the result of the key, that is, and, and typically do, the, they would have access to the encrypted data, the results from applying this, this, this secret encryption key, but they don't have access to the key itself. And so, so the idea is that we need to, we need to generate a secret of some length either in one end or in both ends such that knowing and, and this is where this concept of randomness comes in knowing even like prior keys or even maybe future keys there is there's no way to predict the key that we're generating no way to to determine what the next key is going to be from the standpoint of the attacker who can see the consequences um, and may even have information about you know recent history of keys but not the not the one we're we're trying to get directly now an early algorithm that I've referred to a couple times in, in the past is is very weak it's called a linear congruential pseudo-random number generator, uh, which is a, it's a fancy term for a very sort of simple-minded random number generator. It's the kind that was in, for example, the basic language when we were all cutting our teeth on, you know, programming basic in, in, in high school, where you would, you'd give it the RND parens function, and it would spit out something that looked random. It turns out that those were very, very poor random numbers, but they were typically random enough for, you know, the little Star Trek simulations we were running or or rolling the dice or, you know, guess the number between 1 and 10, the kind of things that the computers were being used for at the time. A, a linear congruential pseudo-random number generator takes a, a number and multiplies it by one constant and adds another constant in order to get the next number, the next pseudo-random number. Well, it's very fast because all you have is a multiply and an add, but it's also very weak. It, it works within a, a register of a certain size, which might be 16 bits or 32 bits. You're multiplying a constant and then adding a constant, and that's getting a different, for example, 16 or 32-bit number. And then you do it again, and you get a different 32-bit number. Essentially, if you pick the two constants well, this will, it, it will march the number all over the territory. If you imagine like a big, like a, 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 a um, if you had a 16-bit number, you could imagine that it, like in, in, a, in a grid where the pseudo-random number it generates is jumping around within this grid in a what looks to you an unobviously you know not visually detectable pattern but any kind of cryptanalysis 
would immediately, if, if you gave it a few numbers, it would, it would you know, break the algorithm and, and determine what the constants were and to be able to, to go back in history or forward in time in either direction in the sequence of you know, very poor pseudo-random numbers. So, so that's an example of, a, of an early, very bad pseudo-random number generator. Um, what's, what's happened as we've moved forward and as, as we've had to get, had to get cryptographically strong pseudo-random numbers is a, a huge amount of industry and, and creativity has come to bear uh, to the point now where we have, we have a, a good understanding for the, the strength of random numbers uh, cryptographic algorithms that we've talked about often, like AES 128 or 256, can be uh, can, can can be used as can uh, cryptographic hashes. Um, and um, we we always, however, have a problem of of this determinism because you know in in that simple example I gave. Uh, with this linear congruential pseudo-random number generator, it's obviously it itself is a weak random number generator. But you know, it's still being it's it's being hosted by a computer. Well, our cryptographic approaches and hashes are also being hosted by a computer. So we we have this problem of of how do we break free of of a, of operating in a deterministic environment how do we get something which is is good enough how do we know it's good enough how do we prove it's good enough uh, and and what is good enough and that's our subject for two weeks from now solving can't, this can't problem that's fascinating stuff um next week of course we're taking questions and if you've got a question for steve you go to grc.com feedback and uh, leave a question there we'll do 10 or so good questions about this or any other topic Actually, I bet, you know, if we got some good questions about randomness, this would be good to, so to speak, seed <laughs> the following week's conversation. Uh, I think this is fascinating. And, you know, I've, anybody who learns programming learns, you know, about R&D, uh, you know, the random number functions, and then learns that they repeat. <laughs> if, well, if you... If, it's if you totally go, predictable. <laughs> yes, it's really bad. And in fact, there was a in fact there was a randomize function. You'll remember right. that sort of was supposed to break us out of that repetition. Now, sometimes having numbers repeatable is very useful. For example, if you've um, if you've got a process um, where you're 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 doing some modeling um, and and driving a model with random numbers, sometimes you do want to be able to repeat exactly the same string of random numbers or say for example that um remember when ei uh the, the security firm down in aliso viejo was pounding on windows throwing random stuff at the windows api until it broke well they may want to be able to set up an, an identical system and give you know and give the same sequence of not really random but pseudo random data to windows and, and watch it fail. So there are times when you actually do want repetition in your random numbers. Interesting. And uh, although not always, um, there's a page that isn't public on GRC. It's grc.com slash, and you can put it in right now, Leo, if you're curious, grc.com slash 
R&D, that's R ampersand D slash JS dot HTM, as in JavaScript, uh, it is actually, that's the a platform that I developed. It's the first JavaScript code that I wrote after I taught myself JavaScript recently for the project I'm working towards finishing now, which is the, the passcode designer that I've spoken briefly of before. Um, and anyway, that page, grc.com slash r ampersand d. <laughs> I love how you comment even your learning JavaScript stuff. <laughs> I love it, Steve. This is, this is a pro. This is a pro. He <laughs> diagrams the stuff that's not even public. Yeah, I've just... <laughs> this is such a pro, Steve. I, you're unbelievable. Well, it's, uh, that is my first JavaScript, and uh, I, I had to solve the problem of, of running something in the user's browser which didn't necessarily have access to a lot of entropy because JavaScript's own random number generator is known, many of them are known not to be good, um, and we really can't count on the user to give us lots of randomness. For example, when you're when you're establishing an encrypted drive in TrueCrypt, they you know they have you move the mouse around, and and, and it's like that just always annoyed me because that's you know you could demonstrate that's not very random compared to you know what's available. Um, so anyway, so I solved the problem uh, as that page demonstrates and documents for anyone who's curious, and it's it's the heart of the the random number generator technology, which is then going to surface in the Pasco designer that I hope to be showing our listeners very soon. I have to say, it's, it's, I have no idea what you're talking about here, but it's very, <laughs> it's very cool. I just love it. That's, that's my first JavaScript. <laughs> Steve Gibson is at grc.com. That's where you go to get SpinRight, and you got to get SpinRight. It's the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. It'll even take your temperature. It'll even take your temperature. grc.com. While you're there, lots of free stuff, including Shields Up, Wismo, uh, the passwords, all of the stuff that he does. It's so great. The, you know, the perfect passwords. Uh, you can get a, a good 64-character password, totally random, from Steve. 3,700 uh, people do every day. Is that? Wow. 3,700 a day. That's almost encouraging. It's like, wow, there's somebody who cares. There are 3,700 people a day who care about security. <laughs> yeah, I'll take it. GRC.com. Steve, it's so it's always a pleasure. Next week we answer questions. Two weeks from now we continue our discussion of how random numbers, real random numbers, can be generated from pseudo-random situations. Where where we get them and how we get them from a computer that really doesn't want to give them to us at all. It's a fight. <laughs> it's it a is. Battle. Thanks, Steve. Have a great uh, week, and we'll see you next time on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.